Welcome to this episode of the Culture and Inequality podcast. My name is Julian Schaap. I'm an assistant professor in cultural sociology at Erasmus University Rotterdam. And today, Gieselinde Kuipers and I are talking with Hartmut Rosa from the Friedrich Schiller University in Jena in Germany. And he is one of the, today's big thinkers in sociology. And although he's really a star in the German-speaking arena, uh, his work is uh, upcoming in uh, English-speaking regions uh, as well. Uh, especially his work on social acceleration and resonance has gained uh, particular attention. So this will be a special episode which centers around the work of Hartmut Rosa and the concept of uh, resonance. Maybe first, Gieselinde, could you briefly introduce yourself? So hello uh, and very nice to meet you, Hartmut, and good to see you again, uh, Julian. My name is Gieselinde Kuipers. I'm a professor of sociology at the KU Leuven and I work, I'm a cultural sociologist and I work on a range of things, mostly frivolous topics with serious consequences like beauty and humor. Uh, and the regular listeners to the podcast have heard me before. Okay, thanks a lot. Uh, and Hartmut, could you also maybe add something to uh, my introduction of you? Yeah, I mean, first of all, I would like uh, to thank you. It's great to be with you uh, today and to uh, to have this uh, conversation, right? I'm uh, yeah, I'm doing sociology at Friedrich Schiller University in Jena, but also at the Max Weber Kolleg in uh, in Erfurt, which is an interdisciplinary center. So I really want to do a sociology, you know, which is a kind of a reaching out to other disciplines, but also to ordinary people. I really want. It's not just that I think. We need to tell them what we know, but I think we can really draw and learn a lot by uh, by, by by conversations of all sorts. So, and so yeah. Thank you. So let's have that conversation today, indeed. So uh, today we are talking about the concept of resonance, and Hartmut's work centers on the idea that modern societies are typified by processes of dynamic stabilization, which, uh, put simply, means that all spheres of life in modern society are continually focused towards social acceleration, accumulation of resources, and perpetual growth. Aside from its importance for contemporary uh, wicked problems such as the climate crisis, uh, decaying trust in democracy, or increasing issues of mental health and burnouts and depression, this is particularly important because it has many consequences for how we think about and understand social inequalities. So first, I'd like to ask you a question that, that Giselin and I came up with after reading your material. Because we thought rereading these these two texts that I'll also announce in a bit, um, rereading these texts post-pandemic, maybe for you yourself as well, it seems that terms like like muteness mm. that you describe in these texts that the the world has come mute for for people who who lack this this uh, this resonance, um, were uncannily apt for what happened in the last one and a half uh, years. So. How has your perspective developed? Or what? How has this affected how you reread these uh, texts? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I mean the, the pandemic was really a very uh, curious uh, thing for all of us, right? I think it, it has changed our perception really of also of time and space, right? I mean, the, the interesting thing is that it felt like the space had contracted, right? It got somehow shorter, uh, and so I so my first take on it would really be uh, in terms of acceleration. It was a kind of experience of deceleration, but of course it was a enforced, a forceful uh, deceleration. We didn't choose it. We didn't change our way of life. So for most people, or for at least no, for a lot of people, this didn't feel good at all. Particularly when you're threatened. I mean, you deal with inequality, right? When you're threatened with losing your job or something. So so we could see that deceleration per se certainly is not the 
the solution, right? But but nevertheless, the interesting thing was that space has shrunk. We cannot travel to many places, and you cannot many things we cannot do anymore. So it's a kind of kind of contraction of um, of of, uh, of availability, really. Uh, but this, I think. It didn't necessarily lead to the world um, going deaf or mute, right? Because sometimes, I mean, it was the great hope, at least for the middle classes, right, for a long time, that now we could finally do things we always wanted to do. A lot of people thought, so if I had time, right, if only I had time, I would start playing the piano or cooking or gardening or, or anything of that sort. So I think for quite a lot, so for quite a lot of us, it turned out that this was also a great a kind of illusion, right? This that we tried to to do uh, these things and found out, oh, it, it it's not resonating at all, you know. So uh, um, yeah, so I think the pandemic has really somehow changed the, our way of of being in the world. Yeah. So can I ask? Do you think this will be permanent or will we just go back to normal? I, I think, I mean, actually, at the beginning, I, I was a bit more optimistic because I, I, I thought uh, that what we really see is that deceleration is possible. I mean, I, as I said, I, I don't think deceleration per se is the solution to everything. But we kind of lived in a world where we thought, well, there's nothing you can do against this logic of acceleration growing. In innovation is also an important part of it, right, because the whole society runs in these tracks. So I found, and I still find the pandemic quite remarkable because it was not the virus per se who brought down the airplanes or stopped the, the trains and, the, and, and, and even the soccer leagues and so on, right? It was political action. And it was political action by democratically elected governments, even though it wasn't a huge democratic process. So I thought, okay, now our chains of interaction are somehow interrupted anyway. Our routines don't work anymore. And we see that we are capable of acting together, right, in a kind of political way. So I thought this could be really the chance of changing things. But of course, right now we see kind of big attempts of going back to the old normal. It's an old normal of which I always said it's quite pathological anyway, creating burnout for the individuals and burning, heating up the atmosphere on the other hand. But nevertheless, I think at present, there is an overwhelming tendency to try for people individually as well as collectively try to get back to the old normal. But I think after some time, we will remember how it was in the pandemics and that we did have this political capacity of acting. So I'm still a little optimistic that we can draw on this and use it to, to change the world. Yeah, I think there it is uh, interesting to see there's some irony in the fact that right now in the Netherlands, there are a series of protests going on that are called Unmute Us, <laughs> which also seems to be about <laughs> that that this the situation of muteness is actually not what, what people uh, prefer. Yeah. So just as a, as a general introduction, so today we are reading uh, two texts uh, by you, Hartmut. So first we read the concluding chapter from the book Sociology, Capitalism uh, and Critique, which was edited by, by Klaus Dore, uh, Stefan Lessenich and Hartmut Rosa and published in English in 2015. The chapter is titled Escalation, the Crisis of Dynamic Stabilization and the Prospect of Resonance. It introduces the main problem that modern societies face, namely uh, dynamic stabilization, discusses the ecological, economic, political, social and psychological consequences of this and ends by suggesting that at least some of these consequences may be countered by pursuing resonant relationships between people and the world rather than the pursuit of growth and acceleration. The shorthand for this text will be escalation. Second, we discuss the introduction uh, chapter to Hartmut's book, Resonance, a sociology of our relationship 
to the World, which was published in English in 2019. And in this book, uh, Hartmut introduces his sociology of the good life by means of resonance theory. And in a sense, this book is the answer to some of the questions asked in the escalation chapter and as such make wonderful companions. This text, we will dub resonance in our conversation. So uh, I'm turning first to Giselinde. So what did you find most surprising in today's readings? What I find, so I read these books or these chapters with really great interest. So part of it I had read before a long time ago in, in German. Uh, so it was interesting to reread it again, also with the new companion uh, of the book on, on resonance and the new notion. So what struck me most actually is that there is so little of this big thinking in sociology anymore. And it really was quite refreshing to read sort of big ideas and big theories that try to draw everything together. And I think it's also really struck me that that we tend to do so little of this, or maybe we tend to do so little of this, except for when we are Germans. Um, and I think it's actually refreshing because it makes you see sort of the connection between many different things in the world, also psychological, as Julian just said, psychological, ecological, social, political, how it's all interconnected. And this seems to be increasingly missing from much of mainstream sociology. So I really was was struck by the how how um, unaccustomed I seem to be to reading these sorts of things. Yeah, I find this if I, if I make, I, mean, I find this very remarkable because actually this is uh, I noticed that too. I even think that Germany is a little different diff uh, different here because in Germany there is still this debate what we could what I think we could call it social theory or social thought, which is which is really the attempt to give a kind of comprehensive picture of society, right? Where mm -hmm. where, where do we go, right? And and what is the what is the structure and the logic of modern society? And I've just I'm just about there, there will a new book come out on, on which I've written with Andreas Reckwitz, and it's exactly on this question, right? How should we do sociology, and what is missing in contemporary sociology? And I really think, I mean, of course you cannot you know you know you cannot do this with one set of data, and not even with two sets of data, right? To kind of give a comprehensive interpretation of who we are as social actors as a society. But I think it's an essential and necessary task of sociology. So Okay, so uh, yeah, first, uh, before we dive into the discussion on on these two uh, chapters, uh, listeners will probably appreciate a brief outline of the, the key concepts or ingredients, you could say, of resonance theory. So could you maybe give uh, such a brief introduction of these, these terms like dynamic stabilization, social acceleration, and, and resonance? Yeah, I mean, of course, I mean, you know, it took me about 500 pages to write social acceleration and, and yeah. even more <laughs> to write the resonance book. So it's always a kind of challenge to put it in a, in, in two minutes or so. Yes. Yeah, but I think it's, yeah, I think the basic ideas are, are not so difficult, right? I mean, um, I really, I mean, as, as, as Rieselinde just said, I mean, I'm trying to understand modern society. And my take was that we really have to understand that, uh, that the society we live in, um, whether you put it in the singular, one modern society or in the plural, there are many modern societies, right? Their the main characteristic is what I call a dynamic stabilization, which means that their mode of reproduction that, that is, um, is dynamic. That means in order uh, to keep our, uh, our uh, institutional structure, I mean, uh, that's the economic structure, but also the structure of the welfare system, of the health system, of the educational systems and so on. We are permanently forced to achieve growth, acceleration, and innovation. Right? 
And so the remarkable thing, in my view, is not acceleration per se, because a lot of people would would claim, rightly so, that you can see kind of processes of social acceleration in many historical places and societies, and growth mm-hmm. is a kind of feature almost of civilization. But the, 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 what really changes in the 18th century, I mean, it's it's taken some time, but may, basically it's from the 18th century, at least starting there, right? Is that that we can, in order to maintain what we have, the status quo, we need to run faster every year, right? I mean, that's how it's connected to social acceleration. Social acceleration was my blanket term for this. Uh, so the logic really is we need to run faster and faster just to stay where we are. And this, of course, has to do with the economic process of capital accumulation. Um, it's money, commodity, money prime, right? So economic activities are only done in order to, if there is the prospect of achieving some um, some benefits, some profits, some some extra money. Um, but I think this logic is pervasive also in the sciences, right? How we deal with knowledge. If you do science, you have to promise that you increase the horizon of what is known, right? And that's the that's the status quo of science. Increase, push the borders, increase the horizon of what is available, attainable, acceptable. So so once again, dynamic stabilization means the Netherlands or Germany or the EU or the whole world actually needs to run faster next year, achieve economic growth, come up with incessant innovations in order to keep what we have to stay where we are. Right? And, and from this, I kind of come at a cultural diagnosis, which says the problem with this is that for a long time, this was connected to the idea of progress, growing, accelerating, innovating, makes the life better, makes life better, right? We are, we are, we are progressing. And now this sense is progressively be lost. And now we feel, okay, we have to run faster and faster. We are already killing the planet. We are already burnt out individually. But nevertheless, next year it has to be more. So I, I really, I, I still insist <laughs> whenever I try to define it, this, that this is a thoroughly perverse uh, state of affairs. So I ask myself, what could be the opposite? And the interesting thing here is, that in particularly in the media, in the German media, first and foremost, I was really called the guru of slowness or of deceleration or the prophet or the pope of slowness. <laughs> this really surprised me. And I thought, well, I never talked about slowness or deceleration. right? But the idea really was, or the perception was, if Rosa is critical of the logic of acceleration, he must be in the log- in, in favor of deceleration or slowness, right? And, and, but this is not true, right? For for a number of reasons. I mean, because I think just just to make things life slower wouldn't even improve its quality, right? I mean, if the internet connection is slow, you don't get anything, right? And, and if the if the doctor is the the, the fire engine or or the, the ambulance is slow, then you don't get anything either. And even in the roller coaster, if it's slow, it might fall down, or at least it's boring. So slowness is not good in in them in itself, and just to slow down processes is, you know, it's pathological in a society that can only stabilize dynamic dynamically. So my question really was, you know, then I brought this little book, Acceleration and Alienation, and my claim was speed is only is not per se bad. A fast internet connection is quite good, uh, but it's bad if it leads to alienation. You can no longer appropriate the things you do. You can no longer get in touch. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then I ask myself, what's the opposite of alienation? And my answer to this is resonance. Being in resonance with the world, it's a kind of, it's a, it's a, it's a logic of uh, uh, listening and responding, right? Uh, that, that, yeah, so that was the, the way I, my thought has developed. Yes. Yeah, so the first question we have, because this is actually aimed at international readers, is so uh, so with which authors would you feel most affinity? Yeah. So how do we place your work? 
so who are your examples or your forebearers or your heroes or enemies, maybe also enemies, if that helps, it tends to be easier to place people. <laughs> okay, if I have to name one enemy, it's Niklas Luhmann. <laughs> I, kind of never, I never liked systems theory, of course, but I do realize that, of course, I mean, systems theory is a kind of, it is a very interesting approach because it also tries to be comprehensive. Mm -hmm. right? But I mean, I, I'd say, I mean, I've never been, I've never, I never wanted to be faithful just to just one tradition of thought or so. I really want to draw on all sources I can in order to realize things. But of course, there are a few. I mean, on the one hand, as a sociologist, of course, it was really, um, I was equally attracted to Max Weber and Karl Marx, right? I always thought they're somehow both <laughs> correct. But then my big hero, probably my greatest hero is really Charles Taylor, the Canadian social philosopher who is a social theorist. I mean, officially he was in political theory, but he is, of course, much more a philosopher really, right? Mm -hmm. So I found his way of, you know, I, I think what I really learned from him, but also from Max Weber, is that I want to do sociology as a cultural science, as an interpretive hermeneutical endeavor. But then my intellectual training after I, I, I finished the basic education in, in, in the university really was with critical theory. So I would, if I had to place myself in one camp, I would call myself and consider myself to be a critical theorist, really being faithful. Or, I don't think it's about being faithful. It's about developing, progressing or, or um, advancing the, 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 the Frankfurt School and the critical theory. Because my, my, the, my teacher, when I did my, my supervisor, when I did my PhD was uh, Axel Hornet from, uh, from Frankfurt, right? Who, who himself uh, was a, a kind of a, a disciple of uh, Jürgen Habermas, right? But, uh, but in my later thinking, particularly in the resonance book, I also got back to the first generation of critical theorists like Adorno, Horkheimer, but also Erich Fromm, Herbert Marcuse, Walter Benjamin. So, so if I have to name just one school, it, it would be the critical theory tradition. That's interesting and unexpected. I didn't see. So just for the listeners, because we're talking also to students. So Charles Taylor is also mentioned in, in I think, one of the chapters at quite some length, mm -hmm. uh, known for his work on the self and on authenticity. Mm -hmm. um, and I think he's Canadian, right? He's Canadian. That's uh, he's right. He's Canadian, yeah. And he's, I think, in in North American sociology, I think he is usually known as a philosopher and also mm. introduced as a philosopher. And uh, Honet is also interesting because I think he's very often cited by Michel Amon, who mm. might be uh, familiar to many of the readers. So to, just to give people a sort of sense of where we are <laughs> yeah. here uh, in the in the sort of sociological landscape. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think also, so Luhmann, the so the enemy. <laughs> It's uh, another big German big thinker who is who is known for a system theory which discusses how the world is cut up into sort of many sort of separate spheres of existence <laughs> in ways that and I'm I hope I'm not uh, too uh, uh, dismissive or um, or glib here uh, in ways that that would remind many people of maybe the work of Talcott Parsons. Yes. Uh, so to give you a sense of where we are here. Yeah, so now that we kind of know what kind of field to, to place you in, so to say, uh, let's dive just straight to the uh, to the main question. I think we had uh, reading your work as, as uh, scholars who focus mainly on culture and inequality. Like I said before, I think for, for many people, the, 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 the resonance book doesn't immediately uh, seem related to inequalities. Whereas, mm -hmm. of course, when you start reading it, inequality is, is uh, throughout uh, present on its pages. So 
Um, in what way does resonance matter for inequalities? So uh, usually it's about inequalities are about unequal access to material resources. Now this is now this is something different. Yes. Um, so to to put it differently, maybe what should sociologists of inequality or or culture more broadly take away from this perspective? Um, you actually also say in in the uh, resonance chapter you write that sociology and here I cite has put itself into a situation often entirely unwittingly and uh, without being noticed in which it itself encourages the same fixation on resources mm. and helps to perpetuate the confusion of quantity of resources with quality of life. Uh, I thought this was a very intriguing idea. Uh, so uh, I was wondering what are your thoughts on this and, and how should sociologists of inequality advance? Yeah, I mean, this is a this is a very important question, of course, but also, I mean, it's but also quite tricky because it's I think the relationship between resonance or the absence of resonance, alienation, right? For me, that that uh, mute relationship towards the world is very important, right? Um, and it's related to inequality, but may but but what I wanted to say, not in the straightforward sense, right? Because I I really wanted to replace. The main focus on rich poor with a focus on resonant versus alienated forms of, of living or being in life. And it's not it, 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 what I wanted to say and what I did say in the book is that you cannot just think the more resources you have, the better is the quality of your, the higher is the quality of your life. The, 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 right, the life doesn't automatically get better with more resources. And this argument for me is very important because, of course, I think. The cultural log logic of thinking that if you if I have more resources, my life will be better is a driving motor of dynamic stabilization. Right? That that we can never that we never have enough. Also, as a society, as I said earlier, is it's a structural requirement. So we are driven by fear and anxiety. Right? If we don't run faster next year, we will fall behind. But it's not just driven from the negative, from fear. It's also driven by the idea that if only I had more money, if only I had more education or whatever it is, right, more friends, my life would be better. So I wanted to say that we somehow have to break this necessary, log almost logical connection. And I, what I said is that if you look at the, the research on inequality, it really is almost always about and the, what I call, you could call it resources or what I also call the horizon of availability, attainability, accessibility, right? So in inequality research has always kind of looked at who has what, who has access to what, who has how much of things and so on. So, so at first I wanted to say, well, life doesn't necessarily get better because I think there's also kind of arrogance there, you know, a kind of hidden mm -hmm. arrogance because it somehow says if you're not rich, right, if you don't have many friends or if you don't have high education, then your life can't possibly be as good as mine. And this, I think, is wrong, right? People right. can be happy and have good. But the problem, of course, with the way I argue is that I immediately open the door for criticism of the sort, well, you want to tell people, oh, be happy with what you have, right? You don't have to have a... And this is, of course, not what I want to say. And therefore, the relationship is complex. You know, I'm, I'm really, what I want to get at is, is I want to break away from the logic of accumulating resources, because I think this is already capitalist thinking. That's what I claim, right? A lot of inequality research is already in the capitalist, if you so like, trap. So, um, so, so what I want to do, and that's the subtitle of, uh, of the English edition, for, for example, for, of the resonance book is, uh, a sociology of our relationship to the world. And my idea is that life is getting bad or poor or miserable if you feel that the world is deeply hostile or indifferent. 
right to you, right? But now the thing is, of course, if you don't have any resources, you ex you exactly experience the world as hostile or or indifferent, right? If you are homeless in the street, for example, right, you have to lie. I, I really, I'm, I'm dead serious about this, right? Mm -hmm. You lay on the ground on the hard street, for example, and you really, you feel physically how the world is hard and harsh and indifferent, right? And people might kind of kick you or so. So, so this is why I think a lack of essential resources necessarily leads to enormous forms of alienation. So there is a connection between resources and the quality of life, but it's totally wrong to think that the quality automatically increases with more resources. Mm -hmm. I mean, th then things, maybe we can get to that later because it's very complex. Something that really, really, really interests me very much is, and I mean, on the one hand, I think it's completely wrong to say that people who are poor, who lack resources of all sorts, right? For example, with resources, I mean, also social contexts, but education as well, cultural. You can use Bourdieu here, cultural capital, social capital, economic capital, body capital, right? Mm -hmm. And I would not say that if you have little of all of this, you cannot have resonance. That would be wrong too, right? I'm, I'm pretty sure about this. Nevertheless, I'm not sure whether the capacity to get in resonance with people, with ideas, with the things, right, is part of the way how social inequality is reproduced, mm -hmm. right? Because my, and this goes through education. Here I'm quite close to Pierre Bourdieu because, you know, I found his work on, on how inequalities are reproduced in modern society through the educational system. Very interesting, very intriguing. And, 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 and in my take, I think you have, I think he would use or he could use, we could combine his analysis, habitus, right, with my concept of resonance, because I think the school, the educational system, for some people, those who you could call the losers, right, creates enormous forms of alienation. People who are bad at school, right, are kicked out. They have the feeling that they that they, they are not good at mathematics. They dislike um, physics. They they, they 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 don't like sports and religion and edu and music and all these things. Yeah. So I think it's like a systematic closure of access of resonance, right? So so that uh, this is where things get very interesting. If I may, because so you make it clear who is say the poorest mm -hmm. in terms of your uh, perception, which tends to like the homeless person that you mentioned. Uh, but the, I think the interesting thing is if you if you turn it around so where in your understanding are the the richest people so yeah we have an example of the like the, the those who are at the top of the hierarchy if you want to call it like this in levels of your axes of resonance yeah i mean yeah i think that's a good question because there you definitely see that there is i, I think once you the basic needs basically right are kind of satisfied i think there is I would really claim there is no connection between resonance and resources. It might actually get the inverse uh, system, right? I mean, you know, my, my claim really is that's what I wanted to show in my resonance book is that we, in modern society, I mean, it's a complex story. We don't really know what a good life is, right? And, and we, we, and the society is dynamic and we ourselves are dynamic. I don't know what my wishes and needs will be in two, in two months or two years. So we have really gone to, collect resources. That's what John Rawls says, primary goods, right? And he defines a primary good as having more of it is better than having less of it. So people permanently try, I want more money. I want more more knowledge, a cultural capital. Yeah. I want more social capital. Now I have the chance to meet this person. And so, so. but if you look at the super rich, like, um, like the, the billionaires, they now try to enter space. It's really, you know, it's increasing the horizon of availability, attainability, accessibility, but it doesn't make their life good. You know, so the Easterlin paradox that's been discussed a lot, 
that beyond a certain level, more money, for example, it doesn't make you happy at all. So I really claim the super rich are pretty alienated. Yeah. Now, it, it look at look at the way how we experience music. For me, this is a kind of paradigm case, also biographically, right? And I do know what it means to really get absorbed by music, to get to to draw happiness from music. But I would also say resonance. And I would say Spotify has made this experience richer or easier. It's not true. And now I have 70 million titles or even more, which I can easily access, and it doesn't make my life better. So, so yeah. So I I appreciate what you're saying, but uh, let me. Try, so I'm trying to put you on the spot. So you <laughs> you point to many of the places where our understandings of inequality don't work, but maybe you can, have you ever met a person or been in a situation or think this is where we see sort of in terms of resonance or the most, most uh, no, resonating person you've ever seen or the most resonating societal group or, so what is what is the sort of, where is the, the apex? Yeah, yeah, no, I don't, this is really difficult. I don't know. Actually, I've never thought about this, but I mean, you know, I mean, there is, and I, I am, I'm, I'm very much aware of the fallacies of this. But I would really say, I mean, I've been, I, tra I traveled quite a lot, probably from ecological reasons, too much. But I also did it, I must say, because, um, because, because of my understanding of sociology. I really believe we ca we cannot have the right, the adequate sort of knowledge if you only talk to academics or, or have just data. Yeah. So, so I really believe in this dialogical principle. So, for example, when I wrote the resonance book, right, I, um, I, I, I really, or since I wrote it, I really want to talk to all sorts of workers. But I really did talk to homeless people, right, uh, to uh, uh, um, yeah. well, uh, and also to students. And I, I traveled over the world, and I, you know, they know this kind of romantic. People say it's a romantic cliche that when you go to, I remember one place in Southern Africa, right, where there were a lot of children. And of course, a lot of people say, oh, they look much happier than our children. And I know that this is a kind of romantic cliche. And I don't want to say we should all be like them. But nevertheless, I would really say outside of Europe, in India or in Brazil or in Africa, I think I've seen more of a resonant form of being in the world. While here in Europe, I very often, I think, just look at the people in the subway or in the streets. They, they always seem under stress and pretty alienated. But if you ask me this now, I remember what I would say. I think there is one experience of which I would say this is the apex. And this is a kind of, it's a kind of, it's really, it's a summer school for talented students, which I run every summer, right? It, it's a place for them where they finally can be as they want to be or as they are for, for, for a fortnight. And I always thought, I really, I think I developed also my, maybe I developed part of my the theory there because I really see once that fear is gone and the, and the just the, the curiosity of meeting other people and making new experience is kind of left alone. I would say it's, it's maybe not the people, it's the context, which is very resonant. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I understand. So it's also, so it's more yes. uh, like Randall Collins or Durkheim. So the moment you create situations for people where they can sort of develop these sort of meaningful more exchanges of emotional energy. Yeah. So I think it really depends. This is what this is why I think I'm not just a philosopher or a psychologist. I really want to do sociology because it depends on the institutions. I mean, you cannot, you know, I always say my counter example is a toll collect point at a, at a, at a highway. It's impossible to think of this as a resonant atmosphere, right? It might be the same at the supermarket cash desk, right? So it does depend on the institutions we create, on how we experience, how we how we meet each other, and how we uh, um, exchange ideas and feelings and so on. Yeah, exactly. And it's it's interesting to to think about the idea that it's 
somehow easier to point at an alienated person than than to a resident mm. person and maybe that's indeed also saying something about the, the environment we are in these days mm. uh, but may, maybe if we could bring it to this uh, level of, of everyday experience of resonance. Uh, Giselinde, you have worked uh, a lot on what you call, I think, frivolous or trivial topics in a, in a way in, the, in your introduction. I, I don't think they are. Uh, so the sociology of humor, sociology of beauty uh, for a large part of your career. And, and when I was reading these texts, I thought humor seems to be a very important ingredient to achieve resonant relationships because it, it's kind of is like music, maybe like the glue that makes people feel more together. And um, yet this work, as you also show, is a culprit of agitation and failed resonance. Uh, for instance, people these days saying, you cannot say these things anymore. You're not allowed to do these things anymore. So how would you say that that humor fits into resonance theory, Giselinda? Yeah, that's a very interesting um, idea. So, and again, something that we can talk about probably for several hours. So <laughs> I always, I always compare humor to to the way that bets find its way, which actually is a metaphor that that is very close to your idea of resonance, Hartmut, because I used the. <laughs> The sort of the, the sound, the echoes that a bat makes, mm. sort of looking for looking for connections with others. So what people do is they they use humor to find people who are on the same wavelength, so who feel the world in the same way. And what's unusual about humor, which I see as a form of aesthetics with a specific sort of emotional valiance or or a salience, is that it's actually so that it's it's a it's it has an immediate response. So different from other forms of aesthetics, even music. So what happens is the moment you tell a joke and somebody, so you can see it from the person. So they will laugh, they will respond. So the, the, the resonance, you would call it, becomes tangible. And I think that's interesting. So it's a way of directly sort of, which is also, I think, why many people, when they teach, for instance, or when they give a talk, yes. that what you want to do is tell a joke. Yeah. Uh, and you do this because you want to know that, you know, we are all, you know what, we're connecting. So we see the world in the same way. So it's yes. it's both um, the, the 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 experience that you know that you've reached someone, and that you somehow experience the world on the same level. So this is how I explain. Mm. And what's interesting about about humor, of course, is that it's that it be precisely because it's such a direct measurement. It's also very, extremely painful when it fails. So it's very so. It's comedians call it dying. And that's not for nothing because it's terrible. But it's also, but it also, it can really divide people. So, 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 and I think this is also interesting in resonance. So the ways of finding resonance can be, I mean, it can be also divisive. You know, when people are sort of finding each other and resonating, the people that are not part of this experience can feel alienated also from the social situation. But I'm not sure how you think of this. So is so resonance, you described it more like I would say, like an individual uh, connection with the world. But there is, it's also, of course, a group thing. I mean, yeah, I I, I try to identify different axes of resonance, and the horizontal or the social axis is probably the most. I mean, I'd say it's probably the most important one, right? Connecting, getting in resonance with other people, and um, I would. And by the way, this is very important because, uh, you know, I was thinking because uh, your question, who was the most resonant person I met or so, right? This kind of put me off. <laughs> and now I thought, why do I find this so difficult? And I think the answer is exactly uh, what you already said, right? Because for me, resonance is not an individual state. It's not a personality trait, right? It's a form of uh, of relationship, of connection. So it always depends on, on, on several sides. 
And humor, definitely, I, I mean, I must say when I wrote the Resonance book, I did not have this um, on the agenda. I think probably humor doesn't figure in the Resonance book at all, which is now considered a mistake, right? I really consider it a mistake now. But I've, I've worked on it afterwards because we made this, I made this little book with Wolfgang Endres on the pedagogy of Resonance. And he asked me about humor. And ever since that, I introduce it and use it because I think it's exactly as you say. It creates a kind of... It creates resonance. If, if if I talk to you, for example, right, even in a podcast, I would say, right, uh, it kind of being a bit of uh, uh, introducing humor creates a kind of resonance. We want to listen and answer to each other. And this allows us to totally disagree on some points, right? To, to we, we might be in sharp contradiction on one point or the other, but still feel in connection. And if this lacks, then you only feel the, the, the contradiction or even the hostility. So I find this very important, but I would say, you know, I think resonance is not just, it, it's, it's, it, maybe it's not just, it's only a special kind of humor. And I think a lot of comedy is laughing at, right? It's laughing at someone, right? And laughing at someone is totally different from laughing with someone. And I always use this in a school class, right? If, for example, of course, it's cool. I mean, kids know this, not just kids, but kids know it maybe better than others, right? Uh, you can laugh at one of the pupils in the class, right? They are all laughing at someone because it's so funny how he, he looks uh, stupid or so. But I think it's a totally different sphere, uh, atmosphere in this class if they laugh at someone because everyone is on guard. The next time I could be the one who they laugh at, right? So what really creates resonance, I think if it's, it's a resonant humor, so to speak, it's inclusive. It cannot be at the cost or to the exclusion of someone else because... Even so, I'd say uh, resonance is a kind of relationship. It does have a dispositional element. If I'm in a in a in a in a in a, in a if I'm capable of being in a mood of resonance, right? I cannot go against others at the same time. Going against someone, excluding him, right? You hear it even in the voice. Then the voice takes on this sharp tone. It's against someone, right? So, so I hope. And at least that's my idea, that resonance is a kind of general disposition, which which does not allow you to be divisive. Yes, maybe related, because I think you know, we're hearing all these different kinds of ingredients to what uh, uh, resonance exactly entails. And in your introduction to the resonance book and throughout the book, you, you mentioned multiple times that sociologists and other social scientists often fail to capture mm -hmm. uh, what you call like good life indicators uh, properly. So indicators of resonance, you could say, and maybe uh, Giselinde's work indeed is an exception that, that does capture these kind of indicators. Yeah. But I was wondering, reading this, and I think this is also something that is interesting to people who would like to engage empirically uh, with your work. How can we measure resonance to, to you? So I, I've noticed that when I when I talk with colleagues about this concept and sometimes people find it almost sort of esoteric and then I think yeah but when you read it it makes a lot of sense so we should have ways to measure that as well and, do, and I know that your work is more grounded in social and critical theory uh, but but uh, you've also gained lots of experience as you just said on of seeing resonance in the world so so what would you tell sociologists or cultural sociologists on how to measure resonance where should you go yeah yeah, I mean, I, I totally agree with you. I mean, the resonance concept, I mean, at first it sounds esoteric and what I wanted to do and what I hope that I did, right, is taking it away from just an esoteric concept and turning it to, into a kind of sociological concept. And this raises the question exactly, as you say, can we somehow measure it? 
And, um, and it's quite interesting because my students uh, very often say no, because of the, you know, I, I always claim that uncontrollability, I don't know whether you can translate it into, uh, um, in, in, into uh, Netherlands, uh, but, but I mean, uh, because in German it's unverfügbarkeit, you cannot mm -hmm. make, it almost says you cannot make it measurable, right? Mm -hmm. But what I mean is, no, I mean, that's what my students say. So we cannot measure it. But I actually, I must say that I think it can be observed and measured. It's an objective thing and not just a subjective state, right? Because when I talk about unverfügbarkeit, uncontrollability, I do not mean unmeasurability. I mean non-engineerability. And that means you cannot bring it about, right? You cannot write a kind of guide, seven steps, and then you will be in resonance. That's impossible. But when there is resonance, it's not just a subjective state. I mean, by the way, I mean, I arrived at the conception of resonance because I was looking for the opposite of alienation. I thought, what is a non-alien? What is the opposite of alienation? When? How could I describe a state of being in the world or being connected, which is not alienated? And with alienation, you have the same problem. That uh, is it a subjective or an objective condition, right? If I say I'm alienated, is that what you have to take as a sociologist? Or can you observe it independently? And I believe, since I claim resonance is not a subjective state, it's a form of relationship. Mm -hmm. And of course, you can observe this relationship, I would say, even with a camera. I mean, by the way, when, when we get in resonance with each other by talking, for example, um, you can see it in, the, in, in, in maybe my eyes beam light up or beam up, right? Yeah. <laughs> or, or you even see it in the, you could probably also, if you do a very fine analysis of the voice of the language, right, you can see is there resonance or not. But let's take this conversation, the podcast we are doing, right? Maybe after the podcast, I say, oh, it was so resonant. You got in such deep conversation. And maybe you think this guy really never answered our questions, right? He just said what you <laughs> always said. Now the question is, have we to leave it at that? And I think, no, we can do an analysis of, of our conversation, right? Did we move? Did we listen and respond? Or did we just kind of do our agenda. So, so I believe you can make it measurable. And I even I'm, I'm trying to cooperate or we, we have a project which we hope to start uh, soon with psychologists. And, and there I, th I found it really interesting. We want to see with the brain waves, right? Uh, we, we hope we can make it visible there. And with the hormone levels and with the self-report, right? Is there a kind of uh, um, convergence between these three indicators, which maybe could uh, make resonance res uh, measurable? So I'm not just an esoteric philosopher. I really want to make it down to earth. You know? no. <laughs> So can I ask you, because in a site, just in a site, you said it's maybe not measurable, but also, I think, not engineerable. Yes. Um, and so how, what, what, do you, what would you say to policymakers, for instance? Yeah. So there is nothing, there's nothing we can do here. We're just measuring and read my book and thank you. <laughs> just buy it. That's enough. <laughs> no, no. I, I think this is a very important question because, and, you know, I always fall in one, one of two traps, right? Uh, but uh, no, that's not what I say. I mean, what I do say and what I, what I do insist on is that the, the real experience of resonance kind of is uh, un, it's unpredictable and non-engineerable. You can really think of, I think the podcast is a, is a good example, right? And I, so, so you cannot say at which point, at which question and which answer there will be resonance. It's impossible. And there might be some conversations for whatever reasons where you after the after you finish the, 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 the podcast, the recording, you say, well, it didn't work today. Right. So there are. So it's unpredictable in a certain sense, but you can create the conditions which make it likely. Right. And this is very important for me, particularly because you can very clearly indicate conditions which make it unlikely. And this is the connection to acceleration because time pressure 
is the most, it's, I call it always a resonance killer, right? If I have to catch the airplane, right, where, where I go to the airport, I cannot allow myself to get into a resonant conversation with you, of which I don't even know how long it talks, it takes, right? And I cannot get into resonance with the person I meet in the street or the kid or the cat or the sunset or whatever it is. So time pressure and also stress and fear, right? If I'm, if I'm afraid, it, and that might be to personal reasons like a trauma, right? Will, will lead me to a kind of closure. Don't touch me, right? So I think you, uh, we can clearly identify the social conditions which make resonance more likely or less likely. For example, in the educational system and even in the university, right? So I, I, I really hope that it has an, it can make an institutional difference. Yeah. So I, th I think to me this this ha has so far been a resonant uh, hour, even though we have these time constraints. Uh, and and I would like to yeah. circle back to the uh, um, to the main question that we asked at the beginning of the podcast. So how does resonant theory affect how we think about and understand inequalities? And I think the main takeaway for me, at least in this case, is that we this this uh, shows shows us a new direction of inequality studies that has uh, maybe its its pitfalls that we that we touched upon but that definitely show uh, that there's much to do for inequality scholars in terms of what to focus on when we think about inequality and that maybe how people relate to the world and how they can relate to the world and build resonant relations is the is the the, the direction at least some of these uh, scholars may or want to head into. And then there, uh, we also see that uh, that there's empirical questions there as well that are actually also, I think, not only uh, revamping a uh, lot of qualitative research that actually show that like, qualitative research has a lot of value in this age of uh, computer science, social science uh, and such. Mm. Uh, but also to explore beyond uh, our own discipline, as as Hartmut also says, with uh, all kinds of physiological measures and such. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, Gieselinde, what are your uh, final questions? So what I think is especially interesting about Hartmut's approach uh, and something that struck me is the, the, the new form of societal or critical engagement. And I was actually quite struck to hear you say, Hartmut, at the beginning that your main inspiration was critical theory, mm -hmm. uh, because I think... I think many of the students and younger scholars that I that I work with and that I talk to um, express um, a lot of uh, discomfort and annoyance with what you call the moral abstinence of sociology. Mm. Um, and I and I sort of I see that problem. But what happens now is that that people seem to turn what I experience, and I hope people will not kill me over this, as a sort of superficial version of critical theory. Mm which is really very much about power and power relations and <laughs> and I think it's I, I think it tends to sort of not be very convincing in its analysis and I think much of what your work says resonates if I may with with my discomfort also the focus on justice mm -hmm. uh, which which in the way sort of reflects the understanding of you know if we just divide our resources equally and every gets the same access then we will have a good society and somehow it doesn't feel Right. Mm. Um, so what I find very interesting of this is that this approach, apart from sort of opening up new sort of interesting empirical questions, is also that it suggests a different way of thinking about engaged mm. sociology. And I was actually surprised, Hartmut, to hear you say at the beginning that this is what you feel. So maybe you can say something about how you envision this also, for instance, in your in sort of educating new generations, what sort of 
forms of engagement sociology can bring if it sort of does something about this moral abstinence. I also feel this kind of dissatisfaction with some form of a uh, of of engaged uh, even of engaged sociology, right? I mean, in Germany, particularly at my university in Jena, students are quite engaged. It's a very left leaning uh, university, right? But I was, you know, and I was socialized in this in the critical theory tradition. But I, I was dissatisfied with exactly as you said, with kind of reducing the the the, the ethical perspective. You could also say to just questions of justice, and I then and then I even found it's a kind of justice as distributional justice, and then it gets a question of who has more and who has less, and I, I all and, and I felt well, this gives gives everyone the the it's you I now think it's a kind of capitalist trick because you know it infuses the rich because we tell them you are better off. So we give them a motive to stay there and we give the poor motive to want to get there too. So we somehow, this is the way how the, the, the logic, the spiral of, of acceleration growth and, and so on is driven. And I found out when I talked to my students very quickly, they do have this desire to think about what makes my life a good life and not just my life, our life, because it's always socially embedded. And this is why I wanted to take up again the question of alienation. And this is what we did. And my conviction, which I got from Charles Taylor, which I also mentioned in the beginning, right, is that we should not just talk about norms or even not even about values. You know, I kind of hate for the reasons you gave this superficiality also sometimes about the value talk. Because people quickly say, yeah, 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 we need values. And then you ask them, so what are the values? And then it gets very thin, right? So I think what, what Taylor says is quite right. We need a conception of the good, right? What is it? That is uh, that that makes our society a good society. How do we want to live? And and this should not just be something left to the you know to the to the beer after work or to the uh, to the feuilleton or to literature. It's something we can reflect on as sociologists, and that's that's really what I want to do in in the discipline and, and as a, even as a person. Yeah. Hey, and I think uh, that's certainly something that I'll take away from this uh, podcast myself as well. So uh, uh, you listen to uh, Julian Schaap and Giesen de Kuipers in conversation with uh, Harmoed Rosa. Uh, I can't let go of this idea of resonance and maybe bringing it to my own empirical research in inequality studies. Uh, Giselinde, what, what's your, uh, what can't you let go of? Yeah, I think the, the question that we got to at the end of the creation of conditions mm. Uh, so I think that's an interesting question. So if we think about uh, sort of sociology or social science help, helping us to sort of create something like the good life, which I think is an interesting, then we can tell people what the good life is. And maybe it's also something that we can pinpoint. But I think the question of what conditions would be more or less conducive to to creating a good life. And because Hartmut used the example of this podcast and how to create resonance. Mm. And apart from the fact that we try not to uh, be aware of the time pressure. So the thing I always tell when I when, when I talk about making a podcast is that actually what I discovered is it sounds very spontaneous, but it's extremely scripted mm -hmm. and it's all the preparation that makes possible something that feels like a very sort of nicely organized, um, but very spontaneous conversation. And I think this notion of how to create conditions to make something work and to sort of maximize the chances of creating resonance, I think that's a very interesting idea that I think I will spend maybe this week or even more longer <laughs> thinking about how to do this. So that's what I can let go this week. <laughs> and uh, what can't you let go of uh, this week, Hartmut? Have you, did you take anything away from this conversation for your work? Yes, I did, because I, you made me think again about the connection to inequality, right? Baby? I, I think, I mean, probably I have neglected it a bit in the last uh, couple of months or even years, because I always thought 
yeah, if we want to solve the problem of inequality, we somehow have to change the whole mode of existence. But now I think it's time to get back to the question, right? How exactly do we address the problem? And what is the connection between uh, experience, inequality and resonance? So this is something which I think I'm not done with. So it will stay for me for quite some time. Great. Okay. Yeah. Great. Thank you.